This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. series on integrity, we've covered a lot of territory and a lot of ground so far. And I'd like to just leave you with some bottom line thoughts to think about in today's segment, which is about trust more and see more. And the bottom line of that is the more we trust God, the more we will see of what he does in our lives. We will see more of his power, more of his work, more of his action, And that will give us more faith. That's the bottom line. And the more you actually trust God and follow his precepts, the more you basically will discover that you can trust God. And there's a principle. First, you have to go before you know. And that may seem odd because a lot of times we want to know stuff before we start moving and before we go and before we get there. But like that trapeze acrobat high in the sky and the air, and you're swinging on one trapeze rung, and you're needing to go to the next one. For a period of time, you're suspended in midair. You're neither at the original one, nor are you yet holding on to the second rung. And there's a matter of faith as you're swinging high in the air, and maybe with no safety net below. And you have to know and have faith that you will grab the second rung and your life will be preserved. The good news is that with God, he is really the safety net. We are safe in his hands. There's really no danger when we're truly following what he's asked us to do. And I want to just share a number of examples of people in the Bible who had to trust God first. They had to move before they fully knew or understood the totality of what he actually would do on their behalf. So as I reference these, I'll give you the scriptures. We're not going to read all of these, but I'll mention the accounts and the stories. So in one case, in Luke, the 17th chapter, verses 11 through 19, Jesus healed 10 lepers. When he had come into the town, the 10 lepers said to him, you know, Jesus, son of David, please, you know, heal us, you know, from our leprosy. And he chose to do it. He told them to go and show themselves to the priest, which was the thing you did if you were recovered from leprosy, you would go to the priest and the priest would verify that, in fact, you were healed and would pronounce you clean and you could be back into the community. Now, when he told them to go and show themselves to the priest, they weren't healed yet. It took faith. They had to walk first. They had to go before they would know what was going to happen. And as they walked, heading to the priest, they were healed on the way. So these lepers were healed of leprosy. Keep in mind, in that time, there was no cure for leprosy. And they are now being healed as they're going along the road. And because of that, one of them even turned back and went back to say thank you. 
uh, to Jesus for that. And he wondered, well, weren't 10 of you healed? Where's the other nine? How come they didn't come back and say thank you? But the point is their healing happened as they followed the instruction. In another case about leprosy, we find in 2 Kings, the fifth chapter, verses 1 through 19, we find the prophet Elisha, who's healing Naaman, who's coming from a foreign country, who Naaman had leprosy, and his servant girl in his own country happened to be a girl from Israel. And she said, listen, I know that over in Israel, they can heal you. (laughs) She told him about the prophet. And of course, you know, Naaman, he goes to the king as opposed to the prophet. And the king was like, oh my gosh, what are they sending people over here to heal of leprosy? I can't heal people of leprosy. And then of course, his own people reminded him and the prophet reminded him there was a prophet in Israel who operated on behalf of God quite powerfully. And he was able through God to heal of leprosy. But when Naaman went to his house, Elisha didn't even come out of the house. He sent his own servant out and said, just tell him, go down to the Jordan River and dip seven times and he'll be healed. And Naaman was angry about this. He was, first of all, he was offended that he's traveled all this distance and the prophet won't even come out of the house to meet him himself. And then secondly, that he sends him to the muddy, dirty Jordan when they have much better water, you know, in his own country. And his own servant said, well, if he told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you do it? And he said, yeah, well, what harm is it? Go down there and dip in the Jordan seven times to see what happens. When he went down and he dipped in the Jordan seven times, when he came up after that seventh time, he had the skin of a baby. It was completely healed, no leprosy, nothing was wrong with it. Had he not followed the instructions and not obeyed, he would never have seen the power of God in his life. So he had to go first before he could know. And that was the case of Naaman and his leprosy. And then in the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the new covenant, God is really chiding the people because they're not paying the tithes that he's required, you know, under the law at that time for people to pay. And he's saying to them that because they're not paying these tithes, that in essence, they're robbing God. Imagine that. Who can rob God? That's a terrible thing. And so he issues kind of like a challenge to them. And I will read this because I think it's kind of powerful. Malachi, the third chapter, and we'll read uh, starting with verse eight. And it says, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse for you have robbed me. Even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Imagine that. He's telling them, give the tithes that I've required you to give and do that first. And when you do it, it will seem to you like you're giving away resources that you need. But I will bless you with such abundance that you won't even have room for the abundance that I'm going to give you, even though you're giving me the 10%. And the only way they would know that 
is first they'd have to go. First, they would have to give the tithe and then see how God would open up the windows of heaven and pour out this blessing on them. Now, by contrast, sometimes we choose not to do what God says and we suffer a consequence. And so we think that by holding on to what God has given us already, because we have nothing except for what God has already given us. But we think that if we hold on to it, that means we really have it. And what God is saying, you hold on to it if you want to. I'm going to blow a wind and an air over it so that you won't even have what you think you have. You won't even have what you think you have. And so in the book of Haggai, the first chapter and verses three through six of such a case, the people were living in paneled houses. They had beautiful homes and the temple of God was left in disrepair. And he had wanted them to build his house. He said, you're building your house. What about my house? And all the while they were attending to things that were important to them, but they were neglecting what God had said for them to do. And so he says, you know, you're going to put money in a bag and there's going to be a hole in the bottom of it and the money's going to fall right out of the bottom. So they could work hard, they could plant crops and so on and so forth, but they weren't going to be blessed because they weren't doing what God had asked them to do. So the bottom line is for them to see the blessing of God, they would have to go first, do what God said, and then see how he was going to bless them. And by doing it their own way, what they were going to see is that it wasn't going to work. That was the bottom line. It looked like a good idea. It sounds good in the natural, but in reality, it doesn't produce positive results. The bottom line is that when we trust God, we trust him for our circumstances. We trust him for our provision. And even when he's asking us to do something difficult, then we know that he's the one who's covering us in that difficult ask. And when we trust God, we're not relying on the arm of the flesh. We're not relying on ourselves. We recognize that no matter what provisions we may have ourselves, it's not enough for the battles that we're facing. It's not enough for the trials that we're going through, the temptations and the integrity challenges that come our way. So when David was king, and in the case of 2 Samuel, the 24th chapter, he issued an edict to number the people of God, which this was against God's directions for kings. You were not to number the people, which meant numbering the fighting men, because God was the one who fought Israel's battles. And if he's counting the men, he's acting as if he's going to rely on those men to win the battles. And he's counting the men as though they belong to him. But really, they're God's people, God's men, and God will use and deploy them. But ultimately, God is the one who's fighting the battle. And because he numbered the men, God was going to issue a judgment against David and also against the people of Israel. And mind you, God was already upset with Israel about some other things. And so his judgment of them was not just because of what David had done, but also because of what the nation had done at that time as well. And so he gave David three choices. He could end up having seven years of famine, or he could spend three months fleeing from his enemies, 
or thirdly, he'd have three days of a plague. And it was that third item that was really falling into the hands of God. That was God's plague on him. And he decided that certainly he didn't want to fall into the hands of his enemies where there'd be no mercy. Clearly, God was a God of mercy. So he was going to take his chances on the three days of God's plague. And in the three days of God's plague, and before he stopped the plague, 70,000 people lost their lives. And I've said this before, when you are in leadership, your choices and actions not only affect yourself, but they affect other people as well. And because of David's unwise choices, 70,000 people also lost their lives as well because he made unwise choice. So at the end of the day, we have to be willing to trust God and his provision and not count up our own resources because we have nothing in and of ourselves that's going to save us in a difficult day in a dark time. But what little we have, God takes it and makes it something much greater than what it otherwise would be. So in Matthew, the 14th chapter, verses 15 through 21, when Jesus was feeding the 5,000, the crowd of 5,000 men, plus there were women and children in addition to the 5,000 men, and he told his disciples when they said, oh, send the people away so they can get some food because it's getting late. He said, no, don't send them away. You feed them. And they're thinking, we don't have enough money to feed these people. That's more than a year's wages for us to feed 5,000 people. And so he asked them, well, what food do you have out there in the crowd? And one little boy had five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus said, bring them to me. They brought the loaves. They brought the fish to Jesus. And he blessed them. And he broke them. And he gave them to his disciples who distributed the food to the people. And there was so much food that they had 12 baskets of leftovers, 12 baskets of leftovers after everyone ate as much as they wanted to eat. So the little that we have, when we give it to God and put it in his hands, he multiplies it. He grows it in ways unbelievable. So even when we think about Gideon's army reduced down to 300 people, God fought and won that battle for them because he wasn't going to win it through the people anyway. That's why he reduced the size of the army so they wouldn't think that they had won. And he didn't want King David thinking that the size of his army was in any way the reason for his battle success because God was the reason for his battle success. So the bottom line in all of this is we have to remember that we have to believe, first of all, what God has said And we have to believe what God has already done. These examples show us some things that God has already done. We know from Romans 8, 28, God says that all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. So even if it looks bleak, even if it looks bad now, as we've covered when Joseph was falsely imprisoned and accused of rape, which he didn't commit, and he was in prison for a good while, God was still blessing his life. And he turned those events around for good. And God is still doing the same thing today. So what I want us to see is that faith acts before faith sees. Faith acts before faith sees. And faith sees when faith acts. So you don't get to see until you act. 
And you might be thinking to yourself, well, I don't have enough faith in my workplace, given these high-ranking people who are instructing me to do the wrong thing, X, Y, and Z. How am I going to get through this? So how much faith do you really need? Well, Jesus says you only need faith the size of a mustard seed. A mustard seed is so tiny and so small. I remember I once had a necklace that had a mustard seed in it. And the little mustard seed was in a a round, a small round little circle that was a plastic magnifier because you couldn't see it unless it was in that magnifying glass. It was so tiny. And he says, that's the size of faith you need. Not much, just mustard seed size. And we know that that mustard seed rose up to be a mighty and a great tree. Even though it starts small, it becomes something big. So when we exercise our faith, we find that our faith is capable then of heavy lifting. Faith, when it's unexercised, remains puny and it doesn't have any muscle. And Jesus had something to say about all of these things too. So in Matthew, the 17th chapter, and starting with verse 14, this is what Jesus said. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for shortly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So when Jesus says, if you have faith of a mustard seed and you were to say to this mountain, move from here to there, think about the mountains in our lives, the things that seem like impediments, the things that seem like barriers, obstacles. These are the things that would move easily if we would exercise the faith that we already have even that small mustard seed faith, we would see the power of God in operation in our life. So I want to close today with Jesus' parable about the mustard seed, and that's in Matthew, the 13th chapter, and this will be verses 31 and 32. And it says, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And my challenge to you is this. You too can become that mustard seed tree that provides shade and rest 
for the people around you because you are living in integrity. You are showing what it looks like to exercise mustard seed faith. You become a place of shelter, a place of refuge for other people. And it starts with you recognizing that God is our refuge. He is our resting place. He has provided that tree of life to us already. So exercise your faith. See the goodness of God. And you will not see until you go. So go and then you will know. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.